Gabriel Stelion Shanks, the Artistic Director of the Drama League, and welcome to In Conversation. This is our weekly digital video and podcast series where we sit down with some of the most interesting and influential directors and artistic leaders in the American theater. If you'd like to see more episodes, visit us at dramaleague.org and you can just click on digital series or if you're into podcasts, just search for The Drama League wherever you find your podcasts. We are very excited to be celebrating Pride with you today, but we're actually recording this a month before Pride. Um, we are right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I am very excited to say that all of the people donating their time to this series right now are helping us uh, through participating in this series with raising funds for our emergency relief fund for stage directors. At the Drama League, we provide a lifelong home for stage directors, and many of them and their families are suffering during this time. So if you'd like to help us, please click on dramaleague.org. You can donate and join us in this cause. And if you are a director who is suffering during the pandemic, we have a COVID-19 resource area with dozens of options, resources, funding, housing information, health services. You don't have to suffer alone. Uh, we're here for you. I am very excited though to be celebrating Pride today with what uh, we were just discussing might be a little bit of a historic conversation. We are bringing together most of the LGBTQIA two-spirited theater companies in America together for this special edition of In Conversation. Uh, these are the artistic leaders of some of the most exciting and important companies around the United States making sure that queer voices have a place on stage by, for, and about us. Uh, I'm going to be using the word queer today. Other people may use other ways to describe their work. Um, we're going to learn that as we get through this process. I am so excited to have you all here. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we should begin by introducing you and your companies. And I have a no kidding, eight page document of the bios of your individual accomplishments. All of you together are the most impressive people. And if I read this, it would take three hours. So we would love for you to start with your pronouns. Mine are he, him, his. Uh, please introduce yourself in your theater, the city that you are a part of or the area of service that you serve. Um, and most importantly, tell us your website or your social media where people can find out more about your company. Um, I think probably I'm going to go in alphabetical order by last name, just like school, just like third grade, um, which would mean I start with the artistic director of Al About Face Theater in Chicago, Illinois, Megan Carney. Hi, Megan. Hi, good to be with you today. Um, hey, everybody. My name is Megan Carney. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I'm the artistic director at About Face in Chicago. And uh, we're about to turn 25 years old next year. So this is a really significant moment for us. And I'm really thrilled to be with all of you and have this national conversation. Um, our company has evolved a lot over the past 25 years. And um, we continue to respond and stay flexible with the times as our culture evolves and our understandings of gender and sexuality evolve. Um, our mission currently is to advance the national dialogue around gender and sexuality. And we do that through a, an equity main stage season and a year-round education program. So we're really a multi-generational company and we're always exploring how do we bring different nuanced queer stories to the stage and also, you know, in non-traditional spaces as well. 
So great to be here and really looking forward to sharing and getting to know all of you. Terrific. Um, next, I, I'm excited to introduce Paul Conroy, the Artistic Director of Outfront Theater Company in Atlanta, Georgia, my home state. <laughs> <laughs> well, hi, everyone. So uh, my name is Paul Conroy. I use he, him, his pronouns. And I am, uh, besides being the producing artistic director, I'm also the founder of Outfront Theater Company. We are located in Atlanta. I'm really excited to be here today and to talk to all of my colleagues we're a relatively young theater. We're actually in the midst of our fourth season. Um, and so to be able to talk to leaders and companies that have been around for decades, I'm a big believer in no point in reinventing the wheel and learning from people before us. I think that's important to our community to honor our history um, and to hear about some of the challenges that other people might have being located in conservative areas like we are in Georgia. So I'm just really honored to be here today. Welcome. Next, Phil Crosby, the Executive Director of the Richmond Triangle Players in Richmond, Virginia. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us and letting us um, join in on this conversation. Um, Phil Crosby, Executive Director, as you said, of Richmond Triangle Players. I use he, him, and his. Um, first off, I just I want to make a quick shout out to Harold and the Theater Offensive because thanks for inspiring us for our own education program based on yours, which is called, um, ours is called Spectrum. And it means a lot to us. I think we finally got it anchored and good to go. So thank you for um, all that. And if you haven't seen the documentary about True Colors, watch it. It'll just make you cry for about four days. Anyway, um, we, uh, Richmond Triangle Players has been around for, uh, this is our 27th season, was our 27th season before everything stopped. We're the longest continuously operating LGBTQ theater in the mid-Atlantic. Um, we have our own theater uh, in a venue, a, a venue about 93 seats in one of the hottest neighborhoods, or at least it was, uh, one of the hottest neighborhoods in Richmond. Uh, and our mission over the last 10 years or so has really morphed from being a place where queer folks could tell queer stories to other queer folks into a how do we change the greater community's conversation about diversity and inclusion through LGBTQ stories. Um, what's interesting is our audience, and this is probably for later, but our audience is probably 50 to 60% straight allies. So um, it's, it's just an interesting morph we've had over the years. Terrific. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate that. Okay, next I am coming to the one and only John Fisher, who is the executive and artistic director of the oldest among us and perhaps the most lauded, Theater Rhinoceros in San Francisco. Hi, John. Hey, thank you for having me. I think this is a, a wonderful way to get through this crisis to have these kinds of conversations, and it's thrilling to be here. Um, my name is John Fisher. I'm he, he him, his. Uh, I'm from San Francisco, California, and that's where Theater Rhinoceros is. That's where we produce, and we have a theater that we produce out in the Castro District, which I'm sure you've all heard of, and we're 43 years old this year, so we're the longest-running theater on the planet that I know about. And uh, we don't use the word oldest, we say longest running. <laughs> it's a marketing term, it's a marketing concept. <laughs> um, I'm also an educator, I've taught at Yale and UC Berkeley and uh, the American Conservatory Theater, I'm a queer educator and that's always an emphasis of everything that I do. 
And our theater started in 1977 when there was really no queer representation. And it was a place for people to come and see their lives on stage. And our theater was almost destroyed by the AIDS crisis, but it also found new vitality in that crisis in telling the story of people suffering with AIDS. And uh, strangely enough, we have always found new energy, new vigor in the crises that confront us. And so I, I see hope in what we're going through now. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, our theater diversified from just telling gay male stories to telling the stories of lesbians. And it has further evolved and diversified to telling the stories of people who are on the uh, unrepresented corners of the queer community, that of African-American lesbians, of uh, Filipino-American lesbians, and, and trying to address the full spectrum of uh, people in the queer community and the challenges they face the trans community, and we're, we're dedicated to that. Our current um, solution to the crisis has been to produce as much as we can online. And it's great to be having a Zoom experience again because it's become almost a daily thing for me at this point, but to keep telling the stories, keep getting them out there, because I know that people want to hear them. And if I have anything to say to anybody, it's produce, produce, produce. Facebook Live, Zoom, any platform you can find, our stories need to be kept kept being told, anything you can do, get online, produce, do readings, do monologues, find the performers and put them out there. But thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's really thrilling to be here and to hear these stories. And I too, I'm here to draw inspiration. Thanks, John, and thanks for everything you do. The Drama League is a national organization, but we are based in New York City. And I am so glad to welcome the home team, Adam Obsess Rubin to the conversation. Adam, hello. Inter Hi, thank you so much for having me, Gabriel. Uh, my name is Adam Odsess Rubin, he, him, his, and I'm the founder and artistic director of National Queer Theater based in New York City. But as we are on Zoom, we are national and international uh, streaming around the world. And right now, as this is airing, we're in the middle of our Criminal Queerness Festival, supporting LGBTQ playwrights from countries that criminalize homosexuality or censor queer artists. Uh, it's a really phenomenal program that we encourage you to check out. And uh, we're just two years old. Uh, this is our second birthday, so we're probably the newest of the bunch, but we're really trying to innovate, push boundaries in queer theater in New York City where there is so much um, offered in terms of queer theater. Uh, right now we're in residence at Dixon Place, but we are a nomadic company. And um, our mission is to foster and support queer communities through social justice and the performing arts. So while we are a producing theater company, I really see us as a community organization and a community hub for queer artists to, to have a home. And uh, you can find out more about us at nationalqueertheater.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at National Queer Theater. And we're just really thrilled to uh, be with you all. Thank you, Adam. Let's zoom all the way across the country from New York to Los Angeles to Michael A. Shepard, the artistic director of Celebration Theater. Hi. Gabriel, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, my name is Michael A. Shepard. I go by he, him, his. I am the current artistic director for Celebration Theater. Uh, the mission for Celebration Theater has always been the same as to entertain and to bring queer uh, theater to the masses um, um, by presenting the best works that we possibly can. 
Um, we've been very fortunate that we've been able to sort of like expand our audiences as uh, I think Philip was saying that his audience has expanded. Um, like up 15 years ago, our audience was like say 75 to 80% just queer. And now it's a good 50-50, if not more, with a uh, mm -hmm. higher balance of allied folk uh, supporting us. Um, we also have branched out into um, doing children's theater for families that are um, have queer parents or want or families that just want to see their children see an all-encompassing community to celebrate us and celebrate just being who you are and being comfortable with it, which has been very exciting for us. As far as what we've been doing on Zoom, we just had an amazing reading of Dear Harvey by Patricia uh, Lowry, which is the stories of Harvey Milk. And we work in association with the city of West Hollywood and we've been producing with them for several years now. And we are just glad that we actually can take a breath to sort of recalibrate what our <laughs> mission is, to recalibrate and think about how we can expand that. Because one of the things that I have found uh, that we are lacking in is we've left the T out, we left the bi out, we've left you know, indigenous out, we've left these groups out that we have had now had the time to sort of reach into those communities and go, all right, let's figure out how we can be more you know, representative of everyone as opposed to just the LG and the B, LGB, L LG, so. That's who we are. Thanks so much, Michael. Uh, next, I'm going to go to Boston to the Theater Offensive and Harold Stewart, the producing co-executive director. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Um, as mentioned, my name is Harold Stewart, producing co-executive director at the Theater Offensive here in Boston. My pronouns are they, he. The Theater Offensive, we are 31 years old, so we're definitely an older sibling. Um, and if you see your older siblings trying to stake, you know, a claim, we're on a trajectory to build the largest field in the world owned and operated by queer and trans people of color for yeah. all queer and trans people, their friends and family here in Boston. Yeah. So I just say that to say organizations that have been in the game a while, definitely I think we see our responsibility, I think to our legacy and continuing the work to make sure that there's some permanence here. So it's good to be um, in company with you all um, and in the continuum of queer and trans theater. Um, the Theater Offensive, again, for 31 years or 30 of those years, um, it's been an LGBTQ organization kind of formed in response to um, the HIV AIDS epidemic. So this moment really feels like a throwback. Yeah. Um, our founders who were really just activists at the time um, went home one day and wrote a script <laughs> and started using words in a different way to talk about the oppressive um, and uh, the, the erasure of um, LGBTQ folks at the height of the AIDS epidemic and started saying, oh, there's something to this theater thing and that's continued for 30, 31 years. Last year, we became a people of color organization by mission and a new strategic plan. Um, and so we've been on that trajectory since we started as um, Philip has mentioned, thank you. Um, one of our oldest, our oldest program actually, and um, our longest program for 25 years, we've run True Colors Out Youth Theater, which has become a national model um, for LGBTQ youth, um, creative youth development. Um, we have the distinct honor of being awarded um, an award from the White House, the Obama White House for our youth um, program and the last that kind of happened. So we appreciate that 
Um, and in addition to that, we have a community-based development um, process that we use to develop and present and share our work. We are also, Michael, venturing into queer family theater. Um, so in a couple of weeks, um, or in June, we're doing a puppet show, a virtual queer puppet um, offering, so we can engage the whole family around our work. So definitely happy to be here um, in this historic moment with such um, distinguished guests and organizations. Well, congratulations on, on the new mission and the new strategic plan. Those are huge organizational steps that I don't think a lot of people realize how fundamentally important and transformative they are and can be. So congratulations on that. Before we open this up, I, as someone whose last name begins with S, uh, being at the end of the lunch line is always a problem. And so I want to say last but definitely not least in the skull is my fellow S last name, Zach Stowe. Um, Zach, thank you for being here. You are the pre president of Stage Q in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, thank you so much for, for having me. This is really cool to, to be a part of this. Um, my name is Zach Stowe. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. I am president and producing technical director for Stage Q in Madison, Wisconsin. We are celebrating our 20th season this coming year, so we're hitting a little bit of a birthday as well. Um, we are uh, a all-volunteer community theater, um, and we are proud resident of the Bartell Theater in Madison, which is, as far as we are aware, the only theater collective in the country where we all the residents run the the, the theater building. And uh, so, uh, we have been a staple of our community for, like I said, for the last twenty years, um, and. Uh, currently looking to expand our offerings as well and really focus on that diversifying of, of what we here are, are doing in order to better represent the spectrum of our community and that beautiful uh, quilt that, that is the, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, our mission is to celebrate and represent um, queer representation in theater by producing uh, works by and about LGBTQ plus people. Um, and because we're a community theater, I think we're, we have a, a, a fun, unique opportunity to, to really be inclusive and bring all sorts of people into the world of, of theater and art who, who don't normally do it, who uh, want to give it a shot for the first time, um, and really be opening and welcoming. And something that I've always been proud of in my time here is CHQ as a family. And once you um, volunteer with us, whether as an actor, director, stage manager, designer, crew, builder, you know, usher anything you can possibly imagine, you're part of that family forever. And I want, and it, it's really fun to, to keep that, uh, that atmosphere. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate it. Uh, wow, everybody, happy Pride. Thank you for this. Thanks for being here. Um, I guess before we get started today, I wanna just say that Pride is what we're gathered for and kind of what we wanna talk about. But I do want to recognize that we are recording this in the middle of some tough times. And uh, obviously the pandemic is having an effect on the entire world. And that also means our, our companies and our communities. But um, specifically today, we are recording this on May 28th, 2020. And um, we are recording this in the context uh, of the loss yesterday of Larry Kramer, um, who is iconic inside and outside our community. Um, it isn't long ago that we lost Terrence McNally um, and Maria Irene Forness, um, two of the playwrights that were foundational to the work of queer theater. Um, we are also recording this in the middle of some tragedies that I think everybody on this call 
is feeling deeply, and I just want to give space to that today. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Marcella Michelle, the artistic director of 20% Theater Company in Minneapolis, who was going to join us. Um, but there is um, much, much happening in Minneapolis today, and she could not be with us. And so we just want to send our love to them and to everyone at 20% Theater Company. Um, and of course, uh, we want to talk about the murder of Ahmad Arbery, which happened in Georgia. And so Paul and everyone at OutCrowd, we know that you are feeling that deeply. And uh, we just want to give our solidarity with you and everyone in Georgia uh, around that. Um, I think we also, in every one of our communities, uh, in queer communities across the country, we know that in this pandemic, we are continuing to suffer and actually seeing accelerated rates of violence and murder against our community during this time, especially our trans family and against people of color. Um, and so we just want to give much love to everybody and say that our theater is here for them in whatever way we can be. And uh, I just wanted to give some space to that. Um, okay, so queer theater, uh, you know, I, when I think about it, and I started my career, as I told some of you, in queer theater at a uh, company in Atlanta that no longer exists, Outproud Theater Company, in the late 80s, in the height of the um, HIV plague, and I, and I think it shaped me as an artist and as a person, and I think there are many of us who can say that queer theater um, made us who we are. Um, but I also think it's been incredibly vital to the development of theater in America. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of the Cafe Chino, obviously, um, and all of the playwrights that came out of that work that Joe Chino did in the 60s. Um, the Wow Cafe and the Five Lesbian Brothers, the Cockettes. Um, I would even say that as a young person, I was inspired by the work of uh, Theater Rhino and Celebration and you know they had a huge impact on me even though I was not a part of their communities. Um, so you know move forward to 2020 and now you know I'm sitting in an audience a few months ago watching The Inheritance on Broadway, watch, watching rich white gay men argue about having children. Um, I am watching um, many heteronormative theater companies stage uh, some queer stories. Um, and so I think what I'd love to start with in terms of pride is why is it important for us to see queer theater in queer space um, made for, by, and or, as we talked about, allies are a part of our community as well, um, but stories about queer people. Um, Megan, I, can I start with you and ask you what, why is this work being done this way so important? I think it's so important to continue to tap back in to the possibility of theater as a place for transformation and experimentation and capturing the imagination and, and really incubating new ideas. And, and I think that even, even in this um, conversation, you know, we are different sizes. We've all said like how long we've been around that we have access to different resources wherever we are. Um, and yet there's something about that positioning as a queer theater that allows um, that allows us as organizations to try things differently, and open the doors, make new tables, provide spaces for artists to be brave and bold. That I think, you know, may may not be happening in all spaces that are staging queer work. Um, you know, I hear from artists. So it, at About Face, we are artistic associate 
phenomenal cohort is all over the country right now. And, you know, we meet up now, we meet up on Zoom pretty regularly, but in our conversations, you know, some of them are working on Broadway, they're working in big houses in different spaces. Um, artists here in Chicago working, you know, in the rich ecosystem of the city, you know, people report back about disconnects happening in certain spaces where maybe the queer work is happening on stage, but um, the, the kind of conditions for bringing your whole self into the rehearsal room or bringing your vision as a director um, aren't always met in a way that they could be in a queer theater. Um, so I think that's really essential. I also think that, I mean, there are communities within queerness, within the wide spectrum of what we're talking about are so diverse. There's such a wide range of stories to be told that really just a mere fraction, you know, bubbles up um, to get really on stage. And, and I think even at About Face, you know, we're considered a mid-size um, theater company. You know, we can produce only, you know, maybe three, potentially four shows on our main stage year. We've got multiple things percolating all the time, pieces that we're workshopping. And yet, I mean, one of the hardest things about my job is the, the plays that we don't, that we haven't quite gotten or the thing that I can't get to right now, you know, because there's so, such a rich um, array of stories that um, are kind of burning to be told right now. I think um, I really appreciate the historical piece of what you're sharing because I know, you know, About Face was founded to um, with this idea that um, LGBTQ lives could provide a lens for universal experience. And um, that was really the founding impulse of our like founding flourish and like in the first several years. Um, and, and now I think we're centered more around how can we center and support different voices within our communities to lead on how stories get told. Um, and looking at a range of different identities that we're, we're holding. Um, and, you know, we are living in what my, what my friend calls very peculiar times right now, pandemic aside, you know, a political climate that is very hostile to us. And, and I think that holding space um, while, while, these, while the impacts of policies continue to really have impacts on our personal lives, um, I think it's really important to hold these spaces, to care for each other, to affirm our lives, um, and, and really build those bridges between art making and citizenship, and art making and activism, and art making and, um, you know, and, and affirmation. Um, and and that's, a, that's a space I'm really interested in, whether we're doing that in programming before or after a show or in our education work or in how we're developing or who we're bringing to the table, all those options that we have for the theater really, really helping us connect um, in, in really critical ways with our lives right now. Yeah, and I, I think that concept of affirmation and the, and the voice is really transformative. You know, as I was doing drinking in the research on all of your companies, I was just um, stunned by the breadth of the work. You know, some of you are doing world premieres and brand new work, community work. Some of you are doing Macbeth. Some of you are doing La Cage à Fall, uh, works that we know very well. But I, I think it isn't necessarily about the piece. It's how these companies speak that piece into being, right? Like the, there's a transformation. Uh, La Cage à Fall performed on Broadway is one experience. Performed inside a queer theater 
with that sensibility and that understanding, that work becomes something else. I mean, am I onto something there? I see John, you nodding there. Can I, can I come to you? Um, absolutely. I think um, it does resonate. When queer artists tell queer stories, it resonates. It's, there's something different going on there. And it's not just giving a space to an actor to portray something, it's giving a space to a person to be something in public. And the audience responds to that. I love what Michael was saying about the diversity of our audiences. And it's bringing people in to see these stories who wouldn't necessarily see them portrayed by the creators of those stories or necessarily somebody who owns that story personally, a trans person being there in front of the audience. And I also want to always emphasize outrageousness. Larry Kramer was outrageous. He wrote his last book was about how Washington was gay. George Washington was gay. And I think that that's important. And we, that's why our voice, I'm not sure that that would be done on Broadway, a play about George Washington being gay. I'm just not, you know, I don't know if people could deal with it. It's to pull down these statues and reconfigure them and put them back up and, and, and show people that there is diversity in our history, in our past, our present, our future. It's not just you know, it's not just something that we think. There's evidence for these things. And that was always Larry Kramer. He was outrageous. He was an activist. His plays were activism. And that's what I see in all the great queer playwriting that I'm seeing right now. Um, in all, it, it, across the spectrum of the writing is this activism, this outraged anger about what's going on in our polity and the slippage that we're slipping away from, from some progress that we've made. Uh, John, are you suggesting that George Washington was straight? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. He, I, he, he was at least bi. Come on, he was at least bi. Give they all that. were. Yeah, My right, exactly. We're born that way. <laughs> Can I, I just want to piggyback on what John was saying a little bit. I am very fortunate because I have Robert Patrick living like two blocks from my house. And when you talk about Cappuccino and, you know, he is considered the godfather of queer theater. And he's like, like we meet at the local coffee shop and we get to sit and wow. talk. And then we'll have someone like, like Michael Kearns joins us. And I just sit there and I just go, these are the people that when I was coming up and out, I would like sneak, you know, gay plays in my bathroom and just read these things. And now I'm sitting having conversation. And one of the things we talk about is that the spark of queer theater has never, like some people say, oh, we're getting, like you said that about the inheritance, a bunch of white men talking about, you know, you know, children. And it's like, but a lot of people want to say that we've lost this sort of spark, this sort of edge to queer theater. And sitting and talking to them, it's that it's just morphing into something else. Because sadly, the stories that we see, queer stories we're gonna see on Broadway are not the queer stories that our smaller theaters are presenting because we can take that edge and present those stories. And um, I'm so glad that I get to hear from all of you to see what you're doing and how your stories and how your thoughts are going to affect me as I go into our, I don't know what year we would call this because we didn't really have 2019, 2020. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going into a, our 38th year, I'll just put it that way as we move forward to plan that. So I'm very excited about that. If you don't, Can I just add, if you don't add more years, you'll never catch up to Theater Ryan when we go. 47 years. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to add one quick point. And I think really, if it's truly queer theater, then it's always moving the art form forward, right? So it has, um, it is innovative. 
it's uh, risk taking, it's looking at a normative structure and saying what else is possible. Um, so this question of why queer theater is like, it typically is our guide um, somewhere else, right? Um, and there's been models, especially out of the 70s and 80s where some of the larger dominant, um, either even gay organizations are um, the established, the theater establishment will go to the fringe spaces to kind of see what's new, what's hot, what's relevant. And hopefully in the perfect kind of marriage of ideas, you know, they work together with some of the people who've been producing in bars and their homes and, and things like that. But definitely there's this conversation between what some folks may say contemporary, and I would just say, you know, a new type of relevance and propelling the field, the whole field forward. Um, so much so that while we're talking about queer theater um, for queer theater sake, you know, you can look back and see the queer effect on the theater field as, a, you know, a whole, right? In terms of where queer culture shows up now, um, even if the playwright and the subject matter is not uniquely queer. Right. I, I would add, you know, if we're talking about Broadway, you know, there's a play like The Inheritance on Broadway at the same time as you have Jeremy O'Harris's slave play on Broadway, which is so radical and intersectional and in your face and, um, you know, really shocking for both white and black members of the audience who are watching this play that is this really tense and funny and crazy play about race and interracial relationships and queer interracial relationships. And having that at the same time as the inheritance, I think is really pushing the whole mainstream theater forward. Uh, and it really has ripple effects across the entire country where uh, the queer theater on Broadway, while you have you know, a really nice kind of uh, inclusive play like The Prom, um, and then you follow that up with slave play, you know, the kind of radical queer theater that so many of these companies have been fermenting over the decades really comes to fruition in the mainstream on Broadway with a play like slave play so that makes me really excited about the future because you have a downtown young black queer artist like Jeremy O'Harris uh, who is getting his Broadway debut. And that feels like this reemergence uh, of this new era for queer theater, um, yeah. which is so exciting for us in New York. I th I th I th just a sec, uh, my, uh, my bringing up of the inheritance is not so much, I think Matthew Lopez, I think the play is masterfully written and a beautiful epic work about our history. What I am intrigued by, though, is the idea that of Broadway and its space and what it means to do a play there or in our big commercial or large institutions versus spaces that state as their mission what many of you have stated, um, that you were trying to serve a very specific community. Uh, many of you used the word spectrum, which I thought was really beautiful, and, and to lift that up. And so I don't know that I think you know, anything on Broadway is bad or good, just I don't think art should have bad or good placed on it. I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think art should be in competition with other pieces of art. But I do think that there is something vastly different about the electric energy I've had inside queer theater companies. Mm -hmm. Sitting in your audiences as a director in your companies, um, the conversation shifts. And so I just want to clarify, I'm, I, I love the inheritance, but it, it doesn't feel made for me in a way that I think some of the work of your companies speaks deeply to my soul. So I just can want I, to clarify that. 
can I just follow up on, on that? And the question you asked earlier about um, um, come at more heteronormative companies doing some of this work. Um, we, a few years ago, actually got into a uh, little battle with the large um, sort of biggest house in town. Um, we'd been on the waiting list to produce Fun Home. And since they were larger and had more money, um, I'll just say it, they took the rights from us to do it. Um, and I pitched quite a fit, you know, pulled up my full Julia Sugar Baker and, and uh, went into that artistic director's office and said, what are you doing? And I actually got the response from this, this straight white guy that, you know, well, we're artists. We can, our job is to imagine other people's lives. And there were no lesbians in the room doing that work. Um, because of a recommendation I made, there was one gay man who ended up on the creative team. And to your point, Gabriel, I went to see it. It was fine, but it had no authenticity to it. Everybody was guessing at what these people's lives were because they felt they could read these words and understand it all. And there is an authenticity of voice. And I think it's the reason I'm just so impressed with the longevity of so many people in this room because we always get asked the question, well, when, when do we not need gay theater anymore, right? Uh, when does it just get absorbed into the mainstream? Well, you know, it's the same question. When, when do we not no longer need black theater? Uh, never. We never not need it. When do we not need, we need, we need all the voices in the choir singing at the same time, you know, we can't, we can't just be this great um, big thing of pasteurized milk, in I, my opinion. Philip, you're speaking to um, a, you know, a, sub, a, a very insidious idea inside assimilationism, right? That these, mm -hmm. these things won't be needed. The, the same argument is made about pride, right? That we, you know, and, and it's really counterintuitive to the idea that there are voices yet to be heard. There are voices that need to be spoken to. This spectrum is not fully served at the, uh, by eliminating these opportunities. Um, and I, exactly. I, when we, yeah, we yeah. produced Choir Boy, and I knew I couldn't do that. I couldn't produce. I, I, I didn't know that story. I had to have the right artist at the table to do that story. Does, so. does it get hard for any of you to sort of think about you know, I mean, spectrum is a term from the color palette, right? It's huge, it's enormous. And trying to s serve a, a community that sometimes says we are everyone and everywhere, um, it has to be difficult to program to that. It has to be hard to make sure that you are doing that. Do you, do you try to do that? Or are there particular subsets that your work tries to lift up? Um, I, does that resonate for any? I'd love to know about the struggle of programming for your institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, John. I, I, the only way we've been able to address it is to do as much as possible uh, to do readings, to do staged readings, to do full productions. It's, yeah, there's too much product. Uh, there's uh, so many stories out there, but what we can't do on our main stage, we do as a reading or as a stage reading. And that is terrific because then that tells us about the play in front of the audience. And a lot of those projects graduate to, well, graduate makes it sounds like there's a hierarchy, but they, they become main stage productions. I think only by 
producing as much as we possibly can. And I hate to be so like, do, do more, do more, do more. But only by putting as many stories out there as possible are we able to tell as many stories as possible and, and, and to address the diversity. And, and, and we also have to look in unusual places. One of our playwrights, uh, Lorinda D. Brown, was producing her work at um, like, like uh, big gatherings of women. They weren't even theatrical gatherings. She just wanted to put on plays. She was almost a complete a amateur, but she's telling these wonderful stories about the lives of African-American women and their sex lives. Not about, not about them being persecuted, but about the joy of sex within that community. And we were able to put her shows on the main stage because uh, we, we took them through the reading process and we were like, oh yeah, these work, these work, these work. And I think we just have to take a broader look at the community because sometimes the stories that we feel need to be told aren't necessarily being written by playwrights. Sometimes they're being told in bars. Maybe they're like readings or, or spoken word, a poetry. And, and, and sometimes those people don't even realize that they can exist in a professional theater company atmosphere. Yeah, and I, and I have a question for you. So like, I think when we talk about these stories being told, we sometimes are looking at some stories being told more often than others, right? Uh, I'm thinking about the coming out story, which is an important story, but I think is much more prevalent than some of other queer stories that are being told. Um, I uh, and Nyland, the Associate Artistic of Drama League, have a joke that if we see one more play about a lesbian who's never been kissed, we are going to like <laughs> burn a theater, especially a teenage lesbian who has never been kissed. Like, but, so I'm, I'm curious about why some stories get told more and what stories do you think are not being told but need to be told? How, how do you balance those things? How do you search out those things? Uh, I was gonna say, thinking about the theater offensive and again, our strategic planning process took two years because, you know, one of the things you look at is like, what's relevant for the moment and like, not who we've been, but who do we want to become? And when we were working on the mission, it was important. We have a name called the theater offensive. So that came into play. Are you going to change the name? Like, is it still, are you still offensive? And I say, well, the offensive is the affirmative for me. But in our mission, we talked about um, celebrating cultural abundance, right? So, which meant that there was a lot of stories that we could kind of talk about that, you know, everything wasn't in opposition to um, oppression in a way in which we're like, we're anti, but sometimes, you know, just living and breathing and dancing and, you know, I don't know if this is PG-13, so I would say having sex, um, or like all of that stuff is around uh, important, those stories are important to our being, and they're in direct opposition to, um, people who do not want you to exist, right? So I think when we're thinking about the work that we do, it's like, well, we produce like our life is dependent upon it because it is, right? Um, it is important that we develop these stories, that we share them out. Um, I identify as a safe, sex-positive Southern sissy um, to kind of highlight, you know, I'm from the South and I grew up in the church and I liked a lot of what the church was doing. And part of that Dallas religious upbringing, there's a pastor um, in our community an icon, um, Zan Wesley Holmes, and his students, um, seminary students, will always say that Pastor Holmes taught us to preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I take that to think that the theater offensive, we produce with a play in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Um, and it's not necessarily what's coming out of dominant media, but those community conversations. What have we heard? Because we have this moment to be relevant. We have this moment to think about nostalgia. 
we have this moment to think about like what's next, but you know, there ought to be some things in conjunction with the play that you are relying on for like, is this what we need to be doing right now? I think you're really um, speaking to something and I'm, I'm gonna pivot a little bit here because I know that y you and I were talking before a little bit about the intersectional nature of this work. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with Kimberly Crenshaw's work, uh, she coined the term intersectionality to um, talk about one societal position and um, how it's determined by various degrees of intersections with race and class and age and sexuality and gender. And so we are all intersectional, right? And everyone working in queer theater is encountering intersectionality in every moment we make work. Um, I am curious about uh, the wrestling of that work today. And I know, Adam, your company has done a lot of work in this area um, about making sure that not only queerness is supported, but the various intersectionalities that inform uh, the people and the voices and that spectrum are supported as well. Um, Adam, do you have any thoughts on how you're approaching that question at National Queer Theater? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that really shocked me was reading this study that HowlRound published that said that in last season, Lord Theaters across America produced 0% plays written by transgender and non-binary playwrights. And to me, that's so offensive and so exclusionary. And I have so many playwrights that I work with who are trans and non-binary whose work is like so magical and so powerful. And um, it's offensive that their stories aren't being told. And this is a form of erasure that's happening across the American theater. And so I don't feel like we are trying to be inclusive. I feel like it's our responsibility to produce work by trans playwrights, by non-binary playwrights, by HIV positive playwrights and immigrant playwrights. And to include these artists not as a form of tokenization, but because they are a part of the communities that we live in and operate in. And the fact that some of these artists have been excluded for so long, including lesbian artists, including bisexual artists, uh, immigrant artists, you know, that, that's unacceptable. And we have to do a lot of work to erase the years of, in queer theater, especially this kind of gay, white, male, cisgender supremacy that has permeated our, our, our field. And, you know, from this conversation, I hear a lot of folks are doing this work to diversify their theaters. And I think, you know, being a millennial founder of a theater company, being in New York City, being so young, that, you know, that was just the intention from the get-go. That was a given. It wasn't something we had to, to plan later. Um, it's critical that we, that we work with artists uh, across the queer spectrum and, and that we do it in a way that is uplifting the voices of those who are most marginalized. Great. Harold, I know you had some thoughts about intersectionality you wanted to share. Yeah, definitely at the Theater Offensive, you know, we think about lineage and especially queer lineage. So I will go a couple of years before Kimberly Crenshaw, not to discount anything from Kimberly Crenshaw to just bring up um, the Kumbahi River Collective with um, Barbara and Beverly Smith, the twin sisters, Demita Fazer as a um, comrade and colleague. And that collective largely made up of Black lesbians um, who would meet in Cambridge and the greater Boston area um, that would go on to connect with folks like Audre Lorde 
and really just talk about, you know, the feminist movement um, at the intersection, even though there wasn't a word that, that was coined then, of blackness and other things. What they coined was identity politics, which created, you know, some foundational thinking around the intersections of identity. And what they even added was, and really made sure we understood there was a class analysis that was missing as well. So when they gave us that kind of Kambahi River Collective um, statement, you see um, the influence on Kimberly Crenshaw that's also acknowledged by Kimberly Crenshaw from the Kambahi River Collective statement um, and Black um, lesbian women. And at the theater offensive, you know, that's core to how we program as well. Um, there's another Black feminist, Kathy Cohen, who comes out early 90s with an essay, um, Punk Bull Diggers and Welfare Queens, The Radical Possibility of Queer Politics. I think that's right. Um, but really saying, if we were gonna be a political organization around the intersections of queerness, then we really needed to be working with the most marginalized and uh, um, those facing economic challenges as well. At the theater offensive, at the COVID height of or the onset of COVID-19, and our organization, one thing we could breathe about is that against a $1.7 million budget, we only count $1,000 toward ticket sales and earned income. So there was a moment of like, oh, we're not risking a great loss, even though we still want to do our program. And something to be celebrated to say that, you know, we can deliver programs to our people virtually free. Well, virtually, yes, free, but um, kind of free. So for us, it is around the racial identities, the identities of gender or non-gender non specific um, sexuality, but that economic justice piece is there too. And who um, has access to us economically and where do we spend our money, right? So again, we have a responsibility as a larger queer and trans theater company by budget and staff and things like that to make sure that money is going back into the queer community in a way that we are affecting the livelihoods of um, folks we care about. Great. Um, Megan, thoughts? Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, just bringing the history in. And I love how we're talking about this really informed by scholar and scholars and activists who have really laid these amazing foundations for us to be doing this work. Um, and Black queer women at the helm of that, you know. Um, I was just going to say, you know, some of the some of the practices working for us at About Face because we're thinking about intersectionality, but how that um, frames like access, power, and privilege, and the influences and and resources that we might have as a result of the identities we're holding. Um, one some things working for us are just being really explicit about that with programming, you know. And um, we have a program right now um, called Kinship. Um, as an example, as part of our education program, and it was um, it was envisioned and it is curated by our youth task force, who are these phenomenal queer youth leaders who um, engage with us over a longer period of time. They've gone through our youth ensemble training, and then they sort of level up and become leader voices in the community. And um, they birthed this idea of kinship as an all ages experimental performance art space that really explicitly centers queer and trans youth of color as the leaders and as the central performers. And for us, it was just really important to um, weave that language in when we talk about the program, when we promote the program, um, in however we're shaping the space, because I think there are assumptions around whiteness and assumptions around gayness and assumptions around queer community 
that um, we're still, you know, breaking down. And so I think to be inclusive, um, and in some ways borrowing from other activist cultures like disability culture, activism, of like putting a radical welcome out there um, can really start to shape culture. Um, for those of us who are inside organizations that have been around for a while and we are trying to do that culture change from the inside, you know, and um, and really try to change the dynamics with communities. So, um, you know, putting putting young queer trans folks of color out front um, and, and really um, kind of including that at every level of the programming um, makes a difference. Yeah. Megan, I just want to follow you around with a notebook and write down things you said. <laughs> The idea of the radical welcome seems built into this conversation as well around queer theater, right? Like the, the idea that our, our intersectionality is part of our programming conversation and part of our artists and part of our staff, but it's also in our audiences and in our, our, our communities and our cities. And Paul, I wanna to come to you because Atlanta is, is such an a intersectional city in so many ways. The, the programming to the audience there uh, must add a layer of complexity in this conversation. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I thought of as everyone was talking was, I'm not a shy person, and I will call out our season ticket holders if I see they are only coming to programming of which they identify. So if we present a show about a trans story, and I see attendance is down, and I look at someone the next show and I say, you weren't here last time, then... I, I want to call them out because, you know, we're all human and that's a, these are universal stories that anyone can understand. Atlanta is a very hard market, not just for us, but for other theaters too that speak to um, voices that aren't always at the table. Um, the population of Atlanta is basically 50% black and 50% white. Um, we have separate prides. We have, it's very clear neighborhoods that have been entrenched with these racist histories and trying to break that down and within the queer community as well. I, I, I kind of look at it that we're always trying to, all we can do is improve. All we can do is take one small step forward and try to be in, as inclusive as we can and we can all always learn. And that's something that we try to push, not just the artists, but like I said, the audiences to do as well. Um, you know, we did La Caja Falls this year and it was great and it was fun. And I can tell you, as soon as this crisis is over, I'm going to want to see comedies and musicals because <laughs> I'm just too depressed most of the time. But this coming, our coming season, hopefully we're planning on doing, um, This Bitter Earth by Harrison David Rivers, which deals with Black Lives Matter. And it's a, amazing piece and we're in a powder keg we're in one of four states that does not have hate crime legislation and that's a show that aggressively we will go after people within our own community that don't want to talk about that and say no you're going to come and talk about it you're going to sit here for two hours and if that's the way to start a conversation then that's how it has to be yeah um also shout out to harrison a friend of the drama league and a friend to a lot of people on this call and who is also in Minneapolis today and, and giving a lot of love there. Um, Zach, I'd love to have you weigh on, in on this. I, I don't have population numbers in me, but I'm thinking Madison is the smallest city represented today. 
Um, what does an intersectional queer theater look like in Madison? Madison, for the, for the size population we have, it has a lot of theater and it becomes saturated very, very quickly. And uh, a lot of them find their own niches and sometimes intersectionality is hard to come by in that sense because everyone wants to jump on their little niche. And it's, I think, intuitive, it, it, it's important for us to listen to the communities that we serve uh, because people are hungry for seeing themselves and in all aspects of themselves on, on stage. That was one of the first things I remember doing when I kind of rose to the top of stage queue was, you know, I, I, I check my, check, check your privilege and go, I should listen to what other people want to see and um, making sure that people see themselves on that stage and, and feel seen and heard is, I think, extremely important. Um, and in a smaller community like this, I mean, medicine's still big for Wisconsin standards, uh, but um, it's still very important for everyone to get a chance to see themselves. Um, it can be tricky being, you know, a community theater with smaller resources, smaller budgets. We really don't, you know, we have volunteer staff. So putting on lots of programming is tricky um, in shows that require a little bit more um, resources are, are, are trickier to do, but still working hard to dig deep and find those, those stories that don't get told often. They're there. There are gems that you can find. It's just, I think a lot of learning on the job and, and, and making sure that you, you hold that responsibility very sacredly to, to not let your community down when they want to see themselves on stage um, or you want to, like, you, um, like Paul was saying, to, to show other people um, other lives um, and make sure that everyone gets a chance to, to see and celebrate that tapestry that we, we live in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I began my career at Outproud Theater in Atlanta in the 80s, I think almost all of our work was about representation, about being seen and making sure others were being seen by people who didn't see them. And so that resonates with me pretty um, loudly. Um, and thank you for doing that work. It's not, it's not easy. Um, it's interesting to sort of have the, the ages of the companies have been a part of this conversation because obviously, uh, I'm going to turn us now to sort of talk about pride in your work and how pride is an ethos or not in what you do. And um, we had the 50th anniversary of Stonewall last year. Um, and now at year 51, pride is being canceled all over the world. And so we're trying to figure out at the Drama League, and I think you all are, what pride means in the middle of the pandemic and how we reflect um, the pride that is so crucial to our community and our identities um, in this time. So I wonder if anyone be, would be willing to speak maybe both about how pride has been practiced on your stages in the past and how you plan to approach the idea of pride during this time and when we return, if it's going to change at all. Yeah, John. Well, we, uh, we uh, of course, there's the Pride Parade, and we've always participated in that and tried to be as fabulous as possible. And uh, so it's, it's really quite sad that that moment of gathering, which is such a huge thing in this city, has been canceled, has been foregone. Uh, we've been really struggling to figure out 
how we can celebrate in a big way at the end of the month. And um, we had decided to uh, put on a production of Larry Kramer's Just Say No, uh, like a Zoom production. And we would use artists from all over the country. And one thing that has been great is we've had collaborations with queer theaters in Dublin, uh, in, in other countries. On, online. So in a way, the coronavirus has allowed things I never thought would be possible, that we could have a live production with people in other parts of the world who identify as queer. And uh, I had reached out to Larry Kramer uh, by email, who I know, and uh, he didn't get back to me. And I was like, what? why aren't you getting back to me? I mean, come on, Larry, what's going on? And I was about to call him and I heard what it, you know, I heard yesterday. I got called in the morning by the press to say he's, you know, he passed. And, um, and so even an attempt to address pride and to celebrate online sort of has a damper on it now, and it's, it's a real challenge. But I think, that, I think that pride is central to what we are, and it's how we were all born, having pride in something that was not good. A lot of uh, my older donors don't like the word queer. They, they wouldn't like this conversation because we've said the key word too many times, and they can hear it. And I've had to adjust my language with them to LGBT and to other... To other, to other words that are more acceptable. And, but pride is central and moving forward under the current administration, it's key. And we are gonna go ahead with the production of Just Say No Online. We're gonna try and put on uh, the Lorinda D. Brown play online somehow. And we're gonna have a big party online utilizing sort of the model of speed dating, although there won't be any sex, but um, the, the, uh, sort of the model of uh, speed dating as a way of bringing people together as a big group, and then they can go off and talk to each other individually, have other conversations, and go as far as we can possibly go with, with the right now, which is pride online, which I, I really believe is key. I think we have to make this day important, not just for us, but for everybody, because it, it's, it's, it's what we're all about. I don't think we've ever, we wouldn't be here if this group of people lived with shame, or with shyness, or with reservations. We're all different people. Yeah. We've all agreed on, on progress, on moving forward. Yeah, I'm gonna go to both Michael and Philip because I have been to Pride in both your cities. So, uh, uh, Michael, why don't you start? Tell us about Pride at Hey, hey you, 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 you know, pandemic don't stop Pride. I'm just gonna be very clear about that. Celebration Theater is a party theater. Anyone who knows us in LA, and probably beyond knows that we are huge partiers, so we are planning a pride. It started uh, last week. We opened the opening ceremonies for uh, One City, One Pride for the city of West Hollywood. Uh, started with uh, the reading of Dear Harvey uh, on a Zoom reading live, and we had 382 people join us for that reading. And we only had a 10% drop off by the end. So I think it's very important for us to say that these things can reach out to people and still we can still celebrate this. But we're going a little step further. We're doing a whole week of Pride. We're doing, we have um, Spencer Lift doing a big gay dance party for us. We have a bunch of celebrities reading children's books. And um, they, for Saturday afternoon, it's going to be like three hours of just, you know, queer and allied people reading children's books to families. Uh, we have a new reading of a new play on that, uh, that Friday night uh, by a play of uh, How Do We Get Here by new playwright Dan Perry. You know, we're doing a reading, uh, not a reading, but we're doing a watch, a video watch, a watch party, that's what it's called, a watch party of uh, uh, the, um, the lesbian story on Netflix. A but it's, ah, someone help me. It's called A Beautiful, 
No one watches Netflix. <laughs> there are a bunch of lesbian shows on Netflix. Which yeah. one are you talking about? It's, it's the one about the two women. Um, it's just so sad. It's uh, the one about two women? That's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one about the two women who are baseball players who met. It's a beautiful story. It's, um, I can't remember the name of it. That's so sad. But we're doing a watch party for we'll that. We'll look it up and we will put it in the comments below. This video, and we're doing a watch party for that. So we have all these activities planned, and we're you know we're launching them this week, and you know on Monday, and it's, we're very excited about that. That we still get to celebrate pride in the way that celebration celebrates every year. Great. How about you, Philip? In Richmond. Well, Richmond's weird in, well, in many ways, but Richmond's weird because our actual pride celebration has always been in September. Um, it, our proximity to DC and New York um, has always meant that no one wanted to put on a party here with no one coming, right? Um, and then Hampton Roads, which is the bigger area of the city, has the, other, has the third week in June. So we've always done September. There is still, it's still high, it's not officially been announced, it's highly likely the party won't happen because it's grown to be, you'd be very proud, Gabriel, it's been grown to be 10, 10 to 15,000 people in Richmond celebrating that in September, which is lovely. Um, I'm talking with the Pride Coalition uh, to do in June. We, a couple of years ago, we, the first piece of queer public art in Richmond was the plaza we painted in front of our theater, which was a rainbow plaza of stuff. And it's gotten, you know, torn up because buses run over it. So we're talking about at least doing that um, to celebrate pride, make a little community moment out of it. Uh, one other piece that I wanted to talk about an ongoing uh, commitment to pride that we've got, and I guess I've got because of my age a little bit. You mentioned Larry Kramer. I was talking to a colleague, um, this week, uh, who's associated with the theater in 30s, comes to our shows and didn't know who Larry Kramer was. No. I'd come to Normal Heart and didn't have any cognizance of that. I run into folks all the time who don't understand who the participants were in Stonewall, um, who don't uh, understand what the quilt was and what it meant to folks. And, and so I do think there's a way we can keep pride active by not letting that history die and fade. Um, and and uh, not just, you know, not the, just the gay white men's history either. There are a lot of histories through the 70s and 80s and on that haven't even been told yet and or not told in the right way. And I, I think that becomes part of the pride responsibility too. It's one of my big important causes. I think, I think one of the, you know, legacies of the, the plague that we don't talk about is that there was a generation of theater artists lost mm -hmm. and a loss of information and history and knowledge being passed down. And so a lot of the playwrights that were very formative for me, uh, Robert Chesley and um, Victor Bumbleau and Jane Chambers and Rebecca Ranson, and, uh, are, these are names that are foreign to anyone mm -hmm. under the age of 40 in, in the queer theater community. And so I, um, I am curious about how we uh, present a legacy uh, of work and how we make sure that um, we celebrate those playwrights who are happening today. We celebrate the classic heroes of our field, um, like Larry, but those seminal writers of the 80s and 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I would say, have really suffered 
um, in terms of, of invisibility. And I, I, so I hear you, Philip. Um, Harold, uh, tell me about Pride in Boston, and then we'll come to you, Megan. Yeah, so interesting enough, it is the 50th anniversary of Pride in Boston. So Boston's Pride um, happened a year after New York. Um, and so our Pride Parade has been canceled as well. And the theater offensive, I've been with the organization about three years, have always had, you know, I can talk about three years of Pride programming that is included. Um, always working with the Boston Center for the Arts in partnership in June and the kind of organizers of Pride. When I first came, it was the year anniversary of the Pulse shooting. So we did some readings from plays developed um, in response to that. Um, last year, because of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, we had a 10 minute um, play festival um, that dealt with, you know, 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And this year, um, we're doing virtual 10 minute play offerings that include a play dealing with the prison um, industrial complex and queer family relationships at the height of COVID-19. Um, all three playwrights were commissioned and I told them, because I wasn't necessarily ready to have COVID conversations yet. So I said, just write to the mission. And all three came back with some version of a story around COVID-19. Um, <laughs> one by a trans woman playing right Dane Eddie out of DC, um, looking at a trans woman, a complicated relationship with memory, her Republican um, partner who's working at the administration. So I'm just like, y'all gonna layer all of this shit into like 10 or 15 minutes, like, okay. Um, and then the youth piece um, that um, some um, animals doing a homework assignment around their family structure and one has a queer family than the other one and the other one gets like envious and like, I want that family. And I think for the theater offensive, it's beautiful to be able to offer those things and continue to celebrate 50 years of pride here in Boston with our kind of national international community. And what I'll say for the theater offensive and definitely for myself, just thinking about this conversation, pride feels essential. Pride is also very complicated for a lot of people. Um, and pride has to be this place of possibilities, right? So the historic possibilities that were there and how do we kind of continue? So we're not stuck in the moment we are talking about the relevance of the moment. And that starts with, you know, pride started out as a riot. It's morphed into a lot of different things. There are a lot of possibilities under the umbrella of the, the rainbows, um, literally. But, you know, we, I, I think it's important for us, if we don't complicate pride, right, in terms of like its commercial value, um, and, and again, just to create, I think, some more possibilities for it as well, um, you know, then I think that's a, a lost kind of conversation. So how do we hold all the complexities and the beauty of pride um, as essential? Um, but, you know, it, it's complicated for some folks. Yes. Um, Megan, I'm going to come to you. We are uh, running out of time, so I'll ask you to be a little brief. You bet. Um, for just like a sidebar, I feel like the word legacy has come up a couple times in this conversation, and I've been thinking a lot about how to connect this moment with some of the past that we're talking about and building those bridges and talking with artists working today and asking who are your influences and and doing some of that tracing you know what i mean maybe that's just like a project some of us want to work on on the side sometime but to this question um typically for this time of year we're like running a show or wrapping up a show 
or um, and then culminating our youth work. Um, and since we are going online and we're trying not to overproduce because we're we're trying to like also take care of ourselves and all that, we are going to be streaming um, a play from this season. Uh, it was a solo work that we premiered at the top of the year. It was called Packing. Um, written and performed by artistic associate uh, Scott Bradley and directed by Che Yu. And we're going to be streaming that in June. And then also our touring cast that was about to go into schools and be really busy all spring has a show called Power and Pride. And they've been back in the virtual rehearsal room kind of adapting all of that material. And we're going to be rolling that out in a series um, throughout the month. So um, I look forward to sharing that with all of you. Great. Well, I also, as we start to have to pull this to a close, I want to say that in the um, page for this video, we'll make sure that all of the theater's websites are, are uh, placed and uh, we will share their pride activities uh, uh, with links to all of that. So we'll make sure if you're watching this, there's a place for you to find that in one central source and we'll share that with all the companies as well. Um, I do have one final question, and I'd love to have everyone answer it, uh, you know, as, as we wish you a happy pride. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, you've got a lot of people listening to you at this moment um, who are probably interested in helping you get through this moment. And this is COVID theater, um, whether you are doing hetero theater or queer theater or any kind of theater, it is a struggle right now to get through this moment. So I would like to ask all of you, what can we, the listeners and the communities that care about queer theater companies do to help you thrive? Um, do you need us to donate? And if so, how? Can we buy tickets to next season yet? Can we volunteer? We talked about volunteering a little bit. Um, how can we be a part of what you're doing? Um, would anyone like to start that conversation? I can, I'll go first. Great, Paul. Um, certainly all those things, I'm never going to turn down a dollar from someone or someone willing to give, you know, five minutes of their time. Um, the biggest thing I think anyone watching who is a creator is to please keep creating and to create a wide variety of shows. You know, we want to do shows about political issues but we also want to do musicals and we want to do comedies and we want to do irreverent off-the-wall type things so whatever's inside of you that needs to come out and send them to us i'm always looking for a new voice of something that we can do and you know we've said a couple times how wonderful and historic it is for all of us to be here on this call I can think of nothing greater than having a rolling premiere that goes through some of our theaters together. You know, we are, the word community keeps coming up and I, I, I feel like I use the word community far too much, but we are a community and, you know, we may all be separated right now, but that community is what's going to get us through all of that. So anyone who's watching anywhere you're located, just be a part of the arts, contact any of us. I'll speak for me. I'll take a dollar from you. I'll take a thousand dollars from you. It makes no difference. And outfronttheater.com or Outfront Theater, all of our social medias. Terrific. Anyone else want help from people who are listening? Yeah, Michael. You know, uh, I, I'm gonna sort of piggyback on everything that Paul was saying. We're never gonna turn down $5,000. I up the Annie Hall. 
Um, so, but one of the things I think that's going to help us besides donations is continuously talking about the work that we have done, making sure that we continue the conversation, mm -hmm. making sure that our theaters that, because I know all of your theaters, I know about, I've never met any of you, but I know, I know about all of your theaters. And I love the fact that I finally have a face because John Fisher, your name comes up every meeting. It just does because you're in San Francisco. You're just, you know, down the road a piece or up the road a piece. But I think the one thing we just continue the conversations and also invite our, one of the things we do at Celebration on Thursday nights is we have a sort of community Zoom meeting and we invite our patrons to come and see the artists that they have gotten to know over the years. And that has been just, you know, just very grateful because it's like, you know, it's drinking, it's candid, it's funny. And people need that. It's, I don't know who said it, but I, want, I think it was Paul who said, I want to see a comedy. I want to be able to laugh. And we are giving our community a chance to come in and be with us at our company meetings to see what we actually talk about and what we actually discuss. And they are enjoying this and having such a blast. And I think just keeping that conversation going with our, uh, you know, our community of patrons that come in and support us year after year. Yeah, that kind of engagement is priceless. Um, audiences really love it. Anyone else want to throw in before we wrap up, Philip? I'll, I'll just say really quickly, we've been, um, kind of shameless, shamelessly aggressively fundraising as we all are at this, at this moment, just to keep our doors open. And what's been wonderfully, it just has made me feel great is not only have people responded, but they've written us notes saying, I can't wait to get back and see what you're doing. I, it means so much for me to enter your theater. I mean, things that aren't, boy, that musical was great. Things that really seem to prove to me that we're, we're, we're mattering to folks. And I bet that's true of every single person in the room. Um, even on the days where you feel like, you know, no one cares. I think all of us have probably changed lives in ways we don't even know. Um, and that's something to hold in your heart as you move forward, because it's, Absolutely. I just think it's truth. I just want to say there's no such thing as shame in fundraising. Theater <laughs> has to be fundraised. And if you love queer theater, you've got to help it exist. It takes all of us. Um, I saw that Zach and Adam also wanted to say something. Zach? Um, yeah, we're going to be launching a 20 for 20 uh, campaign for this 20th anniversary season. So. $20 from as many of our kind of a grassroots fundraising campaign. And you feel free to add as many zeros to the end of that as you want. I will, I will not say no to that. Um, but, um, you know, like I said, fundraising and, and, and building that up. So when we are able to return into the, into the theater, we are able to continue to do that um, really awesome work that people come to, to really um, love and be a part of. We're hopefully going to be announcing our season at the beginning of June so people can start buying tickets, um, you know, public health willing, and, you know, we'll be able to get back into the theater at some point. Um, and um, being able to um, create that safe space for people to come see art and also experience art. One of my favorite things about us is that um, I'll never forget the uh, a short play festival that we, we ran for many, many years. Several art people would come join that who never acted before. Um, and at one time, there were several younger people um, fresh out of high school who had more or less recently come out themselves as queer, and they would remark to me that they had never been in a room with so many queer people just unabashedly being themselves, and they felt so 
at home and they were so grateful to have that experience. And it was felt so amazing to be able to, to provide that experience. So not only are the audiences seeing those stories, but it's giving those artists and those people who don't necessarily get the chance to be around so many open and proud queer folk to, to see that and, and it's, it's contagious. Yeah. And um, so any, any um, way people want to get involved, whether that is um, financially donating or coming and volunteering and being a part of a production, um, our website has all the information, a donate button. Um, uh, we love getting work submissions as well. So Paul, I'll fight you for them. Uh, but um, yeah, we're, we're, we're always um, want you to become part of our family in any way that you, you want to, stageq.org. Wonderful. All right, Wisconsin, 20 for 20. Get to it. Uh, Adam, National Queer Theater, how can we be a part of NQT? Yeah, you know, we love our volunteers, but I would say even more than volunteering for us, I really encourage queer artists to volunteer for uh, the LGBT organizations in New York City that are doing that on the ground work. So whether that is serving meals at New Alternatives or Ali Forney Center for Homeless Queer Youth, whether it's working at SAGE, which is a queer senior center that we partner with. Um, you know, I encourage people to get involved in that way. And, you know, if you're craving that intergenerational connection in the queer community, that's a great way to get more connected. And that is going to feed you as an artist. Um, and people who have been volunteer for these organizations. They come to us and they say, hey, you know, I serve meals at New Alternatives. Can I lead a theater class there for NQT? And I said, yeah, absolutely. That's great. So those community connections are really vital to us. Uh, and certainly if people want to donate, they can go to nationalqueertheater.org slash donate. Uh, we'd love to have your contribution. Um, and then I just want to go back to this conversation about pride, just to say that, you know, we're stuck in our homes for now, but pride is really within us. It's, it's in our hearts. It's in our souls uh, as artists and as queer people. And that's something that can never be canceled. So I don't want people to get too down about the, the parades being canceled because pride is still going to be present within us and we can still share that, uh, whether it's on Zoom or by ourselves or with our families or our roommates, whoever it is, um, pride is going gonna, is gonna to live on. Great. Uh, yes, John. Um, I just wanted to uh, piggyback on Paul again, just to emphasize this, that this is the opportunity to write those plays. Uh, if you find that you have any more free time in your life, write them write them. You can even go on Facebook Live and do them. I, I think this is a time to really to express ourselves, and that's what's most important. Um, with regards to fundraising, I think a lot of the fundraising opportunities we've heard about, we've heard about not from necessarily Theater Rhino people, from other people reaching out to us and telling us about things. And I think as artistic leaders, we, we need to tell each other about things that we might not know about, opportunities in other cities that might not be available to us that would be available to other people. And so I, I think that this is a great way to get that conversation moving. Um, at Theater Rhino, we've been trying to put as much stuff online as possible, free, and then ask for donations. So my final plea on behalf of Theater Rhinoceros is tune in. Uh, tune in to the stories we're telling. And if you like what you see, or even if you don't like what you see, and you want to say, hey, you can do that better, and I'm going to give you some money to do it better, we would appreciate that. But I think that we're only going to survive this thing as a team. And uh, this is great. This conversation is a team. It's a community. And, and that's what really Pride is about. It's about community. Yeah. Uh, Megan, I started with you. Would you like to take us home? Thank you. Well, it's hard to imagine what to possibly add to everything that's been shared, um, except to say, I think this is a time for reinvention and reimagining for all of us. And 
Um, I look forward to the things that we discover during this time and how it changes us um, and what we get to leave behind that's no longer serving us anymore. And I'm really grateful for spaces like this to be in conversation and, and keep influencing each other, hiring each other as we go forward. Um, I love ending on tune in um, at aboutfacetheater.com. You'll be able to stay up to date with the programs that we're gonna be streaming and how the conversations are evolving for us as an organization. Thank you all so much for being here. I just, uh, I wanna tell you um, so much how much your work matters um, to the people that see what you do. Um, I think that letter that Philip received is a example, but so often I think the queer theaters and the queer theater makers of the United States do not hear how they have transformed lives. You have transformed mine and you have transformed people you will never meet. Thank you so much for everything you do. Happy Pride. I really appreciate it. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, so Thank you all.